Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today I'm speaking with David Lester and Marcus Redeker about their book, Profit Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel, published by Beacon Press in 2021. David Lester is an author and graphic artist. His work includes, but is not limited to, 1919, A Graphic History of the Winnipeg General Strike, Direct Action Gets the Goods, A Graphic History of the Strike in Canada, Drawn to Change, Graphic Histories of the Working Class Struggle, and The Listener, A Graphic Novel. He is also the guitarist for the underground duo Mecha Normal, so he is definitely a lot cooler than me. Marcus Redeker, a scholar of piracy and slavery, is a distinguished professor of Atlantic history at the University of Pittsburgh and a guest curator at the J.M.W. Turner Gallery, Tate Britain. He is the author of numerous books on the history of piracy, the slave trade, and the Atlantic world, which include, but again, are not limited to, The Many-Headed Hydra, The Slave Ship, A Human History, Villains of All Nations, Outlaws of the Atlantic, both on pirates, The Amistad, and, for our purposes uh, today, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. And yeah, he's also a lot cooler than me. David Lester and Marcus Redeker, David and Marcus, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. So before we get into Profit Against Slavery, please tell us a little bit about yourselves. Uh, David, let's start with you. How did you become a graphic historian? Uh, Well, it came out of a belief in the power of combining art and politics, which formed when I was still a teenager. My much older brother was a 60s, 70s radical who had a record collection and I had access to it. And it was stuff I'd never heard on the radio. Uh, Tom Paxton, Buffy St. Marie, Phil Oaks and the Fugs. And through them, I discovered history and politics because that's what they were singing about. And my brother also had a collection of underground newspapers. And in them, I discovered political comics and including the work of Emery Douglas, who did uh, cartoons uh, uh, and posters for the Black Panther newspaper. So I found all of these exciting, and it led me to want to live a life that involved politics, history, and art, and how together they might change the world, or at least have influence, as they did on me. And of course, you know, I was interested. I was always a drawer, and uh, and I played music, so it all kind of coalesced in that way. So uh, when I was in my 20s, I formed a punk rock duo, as you do when you're in your 20s. And um, Well, the, those uh, of us with talent. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is punk rock, so I think anything goes. So, you, you know, it's never too late. You could, you could start your punk band now, Mike, I think. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was called Mecha Normal, and after a number of decades, I decided to uh, – I, I had the time then finally to make a – a novel called The The Listener, which uh, was about the last democratic election to take place in Germany before Hitler became chancellor. And the book was meant uh, as a cautionary tale of how democracy can twist to fascism. Um, And it was after that that I kind of came into contact with the Graphic History Collective, who had an open call for uh, people wanting to do comics on labor uh, history. And it was pretty wide open, but it had to be Canada. And my grandfather was in the Industrial Workers of the World, and he was also along um, 
Shoreman and there was a, a terrible strike in 1935 in the middle of the depression. And he was there at this march where the police attacked it and attacked it. And, and so that became my proposal was to do it, uh, to do a comic on this particular strike and uh, with that personal connection to, that my grandfather was there. So that's really how I got in contact with them. And the Graphic History Collective is a small group of academics, artists, and activists who got together to uh, make comics as a way to uh, highlight progressive history and also to further activism. So, so that's kind of which le leads me to led me to the trajectory leads me to uh, to Benjamin Lay. Yeah, and you know, with so much of your work focusing on the history of labor activism um, and in using the graphic genre, um, how do you see um, your books as contributing to these various struggles? I mean, you're not, you're not just recording history for the historical record. I mean, you, this is engaged publication, correct? Yeah, I mean, because I mean, the Graphic History Collective means wants it to be activism. That's how they see the books, and I and I and I agree with them, and that's how I see even even the work on Benjamin Lay. I think there's a connection throughout history to to what we can um, uh, learn today, because um, you know, in the book I did called 1919 about a specific event, the longest general strike in history. It, it, it's totally relevant to contemporary readers um, because it talks about the power of collective action. And that's exactly what uh, we need if we want social change. It can be individuals who uh, spurred on like Benjamin Lay, but it is ultimately, you know, collective action that really facilitates a social change in a positive way uh, uh, throughout history, or at least that's my, you know, observation of it. And mm -hmm. so I think... Um, I think the books that I'm, I've been working on, they all connect in that way. And it's actually kind of exciting to think. It's not just isolated bits of history that, that is of interest. Uh, it actually has a, a, a purpose that goes beyond the book. Yeah, I, I recently had the opportunity to interview um, one of the members of the Working Class History Collective who have a social media presence where they put out a this day in, in history kind of thing. And that was really their take on... Um, uh, on using history to promote the sense of collective identity and let folks know they weren't alone. Um, they, they use social media. You use the graphic genre. Um, do you think there's any specific opportunities that um, graphic novels, graphic, uh, graphic history um, presents for you or offers uh, for you as an author activist? Well, I mean, I think the graphic genre, uh, unlike other, other uh, art forms like film and television, which require millions of dollars to actually make a project succeed, the, the, relatively speaking, making a graphic novel is 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 within budget, and uh, it uh, it allows us, I think, to take on radical subjects, and uh, it allows publishers to be a bit more daring in what they present. Whereas, if you were working in TV or film, I think you'd get a lot of pushback or things that were 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 just just uh, never saw the light of day. So I think as an, as an art form, and I, uh, it, it, has a, uh, it, it allows us as artists and, and academics to, to, uh, to produce a, a more work that, uh, that, that is actually very challenging in that way. So, and I was talking at a book event a while ago to, uh, to history teachers, high school history teachers, who said that they are finding that students are increasingly unable to read longer texts like books and that graphic histories are are now essential in their teaching uh, process. And so we realize that um, uh, that uh, that that graphic novels have a lot on their shoulders to carry. They are the ones who are going to help create the future activists, the, the future union leaders and the future Benjamin Lays. And uh, uh, the other thing about comics is that um, for people who find history and politics boring or intimidating, <laughs> I've found that um, graphic novels do open it up to people. It is really an inviting, popular style art form. Uh, and so I think it has that going for it as well, as well as I would also lastly add that um, the form is not so rigid that you can't break out of it as an artist. And so for me, because I approach everything kind of from a punk rock vantage point, um, it frees me up to make a book 
the way I want to make it and without totally conforming to the way comics are normally um, presented and the, and the, uh, uh, because it, it's a graphic history, it's a graphic novel, whatever you want to call it, but it is, um, it is very free form, unlike many other, um, other art forms where a bit more rigid. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, the graphic genre, um, has such a long tradition of breaking down that fourth wall. Um, I mean, that sort of the, the urtext for, for my career and both in my publishing and teaching with graph, the graphic format is, is R. Spiegelman's mouse, where at a couple points in the book, he, he speaks directly to the, the reader viewer. And, um, yeah, I think that, that it, it does create some, those really interesting opportunities. Um, Marcus, could you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory? How did you become um, a renowned scholar of pirate ships and slave ships? Well, Mike, I am a creature of the movements of the 60s and 70s. So you might say that uh, I was uh, strongly conditioned to want to write a history from below, history about the people who have been long left out of the top-down narratives. But I became a, a maritime scholar by accident, almost, coming, as I do, from the great maritime state of Kentucky. Um, <laughs> I basically started uh, in graduate school to uh, look for a subject to investigate using legal records. And what I decided to do was to study the uh, pirates of the early 18th century left a vast trail of documentation in their wake. Uh, so once I did that, then I ended up going on to study sailors. And before you know it, I was at sea. And uh, I had originally started uh, off to graduate school to become a historian of slavery. But I ended up working way, my way back around to that subject uh, by writing about slave ships and the Amistad Rebellion and that sort of thing. So it was uh, I became an Atlantic historian by following sailors around. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I, in, in addition to always having wanted to be in a punk rock band, um, David, I, I, in the past few years, when I really got an under, understanding of what maritime history is and, and what it can do, I'm kind of kicking myself because I, I grew up on boats in Hawaii and I was like, <laughs> I would have been a great maritime historian. I could you know, write, write what you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I've actually had encounters with pirates on a number of occasions, um, oh. including having uh, my passport taken and being held uh, lightly hostage by um, a certain poli pirate police force in in West Sumatra. But we'll leave them alone. Um, wow. Let's let's talk about um, about Benjamin Lay. Um, uh, so I mean, the book is is a biography of him, but. What is, what is the quick biography of this early abolitionist? And um, I was really curious to hear about the, the journey of his life, like the physical journey, where, where he wound up, as he seems like such an emblematic creature of the Atlantic world in this time. Um, Marcus, could you speak about that? Sure. Let me just say first, Mike, that uh, Benjamin Lay is probably the most fascinating historical figure that your listeners have never heard of. Uh, and we might want to get into why no one has heard of him, although David and I are doing our best to change that. Uh, Benjamin Lay was born in 1682 in uh, Essex, the, uh, a little village called Copford in England, about 60 miles northeast of London, born to a humble Quaker family. Uh, he worked as a shepherd, as a youth, uh, and eventually ran away to London and became a sailor. Uh, even though he had dwarfism and a uh, hunchback, he was uh, physically very strong and able. He sailed around the world for about a dozen years, taking on the, uh, the traditions of solidarity among sailors who worked in such a dangerous environment. Uh, he ended up... Uh, moving to Barbados with his wife, uh, Sarah. Sarah Smith was her maiden name. And there he confronted what was probably the, the most powerful slave society in the world. Uh, he saw the torture, he saw the horror that uh, made a huge impact on him, turned him into an abolitionist in 1718. So he's, as you can see, he's well ahead of the, the curve. Uh, he ended up leaving Barbados, going back to London. Increasingly, he's in trouble with the wealthy Quakers who are running the meetings. Uh, and he and Sarah then decide to migrate to Philadelphia 
1732. They, they do so and they discover when they get there that a lot of Quakers own slaves. And Benjamin is in a fury about this. So he spends uh, the next 27 years of his life devoted to trying to eliminate slavery among his fellow Quakers and doing everything he can to humiliate slave owners in public. So this was Benjamin Lay's life. He died in 1759. And by the time he died, the Quakers were already well on their way to becoming the first group to ban slavery in their own midst. So um, the Quaker identity is is very important to uh, Benjamin Lay's life. He's a, a devout Quaker. Um, um, can you discuss his religious faith and um, talk about the way that you situate his biography in a history of a longer religious tradition? Yes, you know, the people don't know often that the Quakers emerged at a very important political moment during the English Revolution of the 1640s and 1650s. Uh, this was one in which the royalists uh, supporting the king uh, were in battle against parliamentary forces led by Oliver Cromwell. But most importantly for Benjamin Lay's story is that within this upheaval, there erupted uh, new kinds of radicalism and groups called the levelers, the diggers, the seekers, the ranters, and the Quakers, who were extremely radical at this time. Uh, Quakers denied uh, hierarchy. They refused to take off their hats to gentlemen. They were considered to be extremely subversive. Uh, so, so they were actually part, these Quakers, of, of what I call an antinomian tradition, which is a, a tradition uh, in which you reject the formal learning uh, and authority of magistrates and ministers, and you basically decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. Uh, this is a de deeply subversive set of beliefs. And Benjamin Lay is someone who inherits this kind of Quaker radicalism. Even though he's born uh, a generation after the English Revolution, uh, he embraces these ideals and uh, attaches them to slavery uh, in new ways. So what kind of tactics did he use as an abolitionist? Well, his tactics were extreme. And Mike, this is one of the reasons why he is unknown. He was considered to be uh, of the wrong class. Uh, he was a working man his entire life. He had the wrong kind of body. And he used the wrong kind of tactics uh, as uh, the middle class and upper class abolitionists would have seen things in his own day. And as historians have seen them ever since. And just to give you Example, Benjamin would, uh, for example, uh, do things to humiliate slave owners in public. And on one occasion, he took a, uh, an animal bladder filled with fake blood, tucked it inside a Bible, uh, went to a big Quaker meeting, uh, denounced slavery, ran a sword through the Bible and sprinkled the blood on the slave owners sitting nearby. This was outrageous. But as you can imagine, it made everybody discuss his ideas and his opposition to slavery. So Benjamin uh, was in some ways a lone voice uh, because the anti-slavery movement was a couple of generations away, but he was slowly and patiently building a movement and these dramatic, you might say extravagant protests were a very big part of his success. I think in the afterward of the, uh, the book, uh, it's described as uh, guerrilla theater and sort of resonates so much with, um, you know, some of the, the really amazing activists of the, the late 1960s and the early 1970s. Um, and that the, the, a couple of these, these events in the, in the graphic novel really, uh, really brought that to life. And, and it, it seemed very familiar with some people I know who are climate change activists and elsewhere in it. Um, which I guess sort of raises this question of, you know, what is Benjamin Lay's legacy? Um, uh, how was he remembered after his death? Um, you know, was there a remembering or a forgetting of him, as you alluded to earlier? Well, it's uh, an interesting question because Benjamin actually became quite important to the abolition movement. Uh, Benjamin Rush, who was the first biographer of Lay and himself an abolitionist physician and enlightenment figure, 
said that the abolitionists he knew all had pictures of Benjamin Lay in their homes. So he was very well known at one time, uh, and he became part of the genealogy of the abolition movement. But after the Civil War and with the rise of white supremacy, there was a systematic forgetting of that kind of history. And then historians contributed to this by essentially leaving Benjamin out as the wrong kind of abolitionist and telling a story that uh, uh, was designed to marginalize people like him. So uh, this is one of the things that uh, David and I are very keen to do, and that's to bring Benjamin Lay back to public memory. Uh, He was uh, a class-conscious, gender-conscious, race-conscious, environmentally-conscious, vegetarian who believed in animal rights. Now, this is in the 1730s, right? Most people think that combination of beliefs is only possible in the 1970s, but but literally 240 years earlier, Benjamin Lay has this integrated, radical worldview. Uh, And one phrase, just to refer, Mike, to, to the way you introduced this question, Benjamin Lay said, beware rich men who poison the earth for gain. Now, that could have been said this morning and probably was somewhere. But he Hopefully was it was being this, said in, in Scotland today at the uh, We hope so. The we hope that a lot of people were saying it. But this guy is saying this 300 years ago. It's really pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, just, just reading about his um, uh, the different aspects of his moral and ethical concerns and how that he he walked the walk, right? You know, it made, made the, the personal political. I mean, he's, he's intersectional before it was cool. I mean, he's, he sees it all tied together in a way that, um, you know, so many historical figures we look at they're, they're, they're good on a few things, but not on another, but he's, he's this complete package. Um, so you've, you've now told Benjamin Lay's history in several genres, uh, traditional academic text, uh, a, a stage play, um, the graphic novel. Can you talk about why it's important to you um, to explore these various genres for communicating and, and what that means to you? Well, it means a lot, Mike, because uh, I believe that Benjamin Lay is such a powerful historical figure uh, and someone that we need now. We need him now. Uh, he, he is a an exemplar of conviction, of devotion to the cause, of of seeing all of the different oppressions that operate in the world. So uh, after writing this book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, I was very eager to work with uh, David and Paul Buell on this graphic novel, working with uh, playwright Naomi Wallace uh, on a play called The Return of Benjamin Lay, which we will hope to have a production of in the relatively near future. I'm working on a children's book. Uh, there's a TV series underway. And my attitude is uh, the more ways that we can reach people with the story of Benjamin Lay, the better off we all will be. Right, right. Factor him back into historical memory. and yeah. Um, David, uh, how did you come to this project? Um, whose idea was it uh, to adapt this it, uh, this history to the graphic genre? Uh, well, in uh, 2018, I had just completed my book, 1919, and I was about to continue drawing a graphic biography on the last year in the life of the anarchist Emma Goldman. Oh, yeah. When I was contacted by Paul Buell about whether I had any interest in drawing the life of Benjamin Lay, uh, I'd never heard of Benjamin Lay, and I knew very little about the 18th century or Quakerism. So I was kind of reluctant to take on the book. Paul said it would be based on Marcus Redeker's book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay. So after a lot of back and forth in Paul's legendary enthusiasm, I read Marcus's book and found it um, uh, deeply compelling. And I decided I would illustrate Benjamin Lay's life. Uh, I was also impressed by the how the first chapter in Marcus's book was so cinematic. And he described that scene earlier. Um, with the uh, sword through the the Bible. I felt this was a very good sign uh, of people I wanted to work with. And it seemed obvious that the book would start, should start in the same way, which is what I did. Um, So I prepared a sample chapter for Marcus and Paul to submit to publishers. And 
and uh, Beacon became the book's home. So that's kind of how it came together. So I, I was a somewhat reluctant artist, but uh, I am now very excited about it all. So, well, I mean, the, the the end product is really successful, and um, I, I, I mean, I found it really compelling and um, and 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 also beautifully illustrated. Um, so I, I've got a kind of a personal question because I wrote a graphic history, and I'm a real pain in the neck about correcting people who call who dare call it a graphic novel, right? It's a it's a graphic history. Um, it's a work of historical research, right? It could have been a monograph, took it to the graphic uh, genre instead. Um, but this book says graphic novel in the title. Um, so what did you need to to fictionalize in the book? Um, uh, maybe this question for Marcus. I mean, what? How did you write the dialogue? Um, what is sourced? Um, what is what is uh, what is fiction? What did you need to invent to move the narrative along? Well, I want to hear uh, David's answer to that because he's the one who actually wrote the dialogue. Uh, although we worked together uh, on that, uh, basically what it comes down to, Mike, is that the visual medium requires a level of specificity that can't be sustained in the historical sources. Mm -hmm. We know that Benjamin Lay uh, performed this dramatic event of running the sword through this bladder of blood, but we don't know what the people in the congregation were thinking at exactly that moment. Uh, we don't know exactly what it looked like. So David had to bring his imagination to bear on this, and that inevitably involved doing things that went beyond the specific historical evidence that we had. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not true. It also doesn't mean that it's fictional. But, but basically, uh, in, in my view, uh, we wanted to create a story that was true to Benjamin Lay's actual history. And I must say, uh, David's commitment to historical accuracy through all of this was just extraordinary. I mean, he, he really took this, the history very seriously. And that, that meant a lot to me. Um, but there is this uh, power of imagination to, to create the imagery of Benjamin Lay's life. And so to that extent, uh, we felt a little more comfortable with novel rather than history. Right. Um, David, do you want to speak to the dialogue? Uh, well, I, I mean, the thing is, I didn't want the book to be like so many other graphic histories, which is here's an image, here's the, here's the description of the image, here's <laughs> the fact, here's another fact, and then you just see you're duplicating. I didn't want to create that. I wanted to create a, a narrative that, that, that told a story, perhaps in a more personal way, but but 300 years ago, I mean, there isn't, there are no photographs. There's very little documentation. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's this is why so much had to be invented based on what we know. And I consulted a lot of uh, artwork from the time, period Turner, Hogarth, uh, and also a lot of unknown people, and that influenced the way I, I drew the book as well. Just images of slavery and uh, and individuals who were who, who lived in that time period but you know you realize when you're making a, a book like this you have to figure out what did what kind of hair did people have what kind of shoes what kind of clothes what kind of uh, cups did they drink out of and and uh, so that required a, a great deal of research uh, to, to try to fill in those blanks because there is no proper record we can go to the way we we, we can with um, with the invention of photography. Um, so, and I particularly wanted to um, create uh, the relationship between ben, uh, Benjamin and his wife, Sarah, because clearly they were comrades, um, but there is very little uh, information about what their lives were like together, it seems to me. And again, Marcus could talk more about this than me, but uh, that that presented uh, problems that, that required inventing scenes between them that I think would make sense. I think they, they, they probably had these conversations or this kind of shared these moments together uh, based on what uh, the lives that they lived. But we have no specifics of whether they had this conversation or that they did this gardening together or that Benjamin did his laundry or, you know, any of these things. We, we just, I have no idea what the inside of their cave looked like. 
I had to invent these things based on the, the few scraps of information that we had about how this, how their roof was on it. And so, so that's why, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was, uh, it was tricky to do. And, uh, and, uh, and it isn't just the words, it isn't just the dialogue, it's the actual context, the visual context of it. So, uh, so that, that was, <laughs> uh, that was difficult. Marcus? Yeah, I was just going to say, David and I talked a lot about this. And while it is true that not everything that appears in the graphic novel can be proven to have happened in history, but everything that happens in the graphic novel could have happened based on the logic and context of the lives of Benjamin and Sarah Lay. And, and David was extremely faithful to the, the spirit of those people and to everything that we knew about them. So I feel as though there is, uh, that's in a way how a deeper truth emerges about them, about how they live their lives. Yeah. Uh, another it, concern, mm-hmm. uh, to, to interrupt Mike, is, uh, is discussing with uh, Marcus and Paul, it's like, how do we treat the language? And because a modern audience wouldn't necessarily relate to how Benjamin talked or others talked to, uh, um, so how much do we stay truth, truthful to how people talk back then versus uh, making it understandable for a modern reader? And I mean, Marcus, do you think that, um, you know, did we make the right compromise? I mean, we used a few to give a flavor of it. We used the I and mm-hmm. uh, the and thou and those kinds of things. Did we do mm-hmm. enough, do you think? I think we did. I think we give uh, a feel for 18th century language and Quaker speech in particular, but I think we do make it uh, quite accessible to modern readers. Although at one point I did catch um, uh, that he slams his hand down. He says, no justice, no peace, which would be something from the modern idiom, correct? It's true. It's the modern idiom, but that is exactly how Benjamin Lay thought. Yeah. And even though we don't have him using those specific words, he believed that motto deep in his heart. So I felt as though it, it, again, it expresses a deep truth about him. Yeah. Well, hey, admirable job, guys, because I mean, I I felt like I was there in in 18th century Pennsylvania. Um, (laughs) um, But and, and also, you know, as someone who's, you know, done a graphic history Boy, am I glad that I picked the age of photography. Um, <laughs> and, and You're also, lucky. I <laughs> did urban, urban history, so I had lots of maps and all the all kinds of details, and I could just give my uh, my amazing artist, Liz Clark, a ton of info to work with. Um, so, um, David, what, what sort of aesthetic choices or style choices did you make with the graphic novel? And how did you use the art to reinforce the history or the main themes that you wanted to convey? Well, overall, I wanted to convey a, a gritty, aged, smoky sense of the 18th century by using a lot of watercolor tones combined with the heavy, heavy line drawings and splatters of paint. Uh, because I wanted to, the reader to, as you, as you said, be transported back in time 300 years. And I wanted to avoid the glossiness that I see in some graphic novels and graphic histories because the story is not glossy. It is a rough raw story of defiance against inhumanity. And, and I wanted the art to reflect that. So um, one of the issues was how to uh, de- depict Benjamin's height and hunchback. And um, I decided to do it in a, in a matter of fact way in scenes with his wife, Sarah, and his friends and colleagues, as, a, as I imagine that to these people, the way he looked would not have aroused any particular uh, concern or interest, but it is in his confrontations with um, the Quaker establishment, I wanted to depict Benjamin in it as very small at first. And as the story unfolds and Benjamin's arguments gain the moral and political high ground, uh, things change. And to show that shifting dynamic, I use tight close-ups of Benjamin's face. And so metaphorically, it becomes Benjamin who dominates the space, whose presence looks down upon the moral failings and hypocrisy of the Quaker slave owners and their enablers. Uh, and in a, in a very simple way, I, I used hands as a, as a repeated visual motif 
as a way of showing friendship and love and solidarity and and uh, collectively working for a greater good. Um, plus, it's fun to draw hands. Um, for the drawings of the enslaved and slavery, I tried to achieve the effect of the drawings being done in the moment, almost as a witness to slavery. I wanted an unfinished quality to the drawings to reflect, again, metaphorically, that these are lives in suspension. These are people who have been kidnapped. Slavery is not who these humans are. It is what they have been forced to be through inhumanity. Uh, now, one struggle in drawing comics is to convincingly convey movement with a two-dimensional drawing. And because Benjamin's activism was so physical, uh, how could I convey that? Because um, art so often looks like a drawing of action rather than action. Artists can draw movement, but they don't necessarily create a sense of movement. So for me, movement exists in a rough, unfinished drawing and the way a hand makes that drawing. The hand moves quickly and the drawing if all goes well, can reflect that physical movement, that physical gesture. So in, a, in an attempt to, to bear witness 300 years later, I drew uh, Benjamin's guerrilla theater in a quick, you are there sort of manner. So that's some of the thought process processes that went into, into, into making the book and specifically making the drawings. Yeah, the, the, the pages that cover um, that moment where he goes into the Quaker meeting hall with the um, the prop Bible filled with uh, fake blood and shoves the, the sword through it. It goes on for about 10 pages. And the, uh, the key moment of the action uh, has this, it's really this frenetic uh, moment with him, his arms moving across and... Um, you you capture that with the uh, the splatters of ink in it, and it to me it's you know as someone who grew up on fear and loathing in Las Vegas and the the curse of the especially coming from Hawaii the curse of Lono it reminds <laughs> me so much of Ralph Steadman's work you know Hunter Hunter S Thompson's illustrator and it I, it just it makes that and it's I, I think those are wordless pages and it makes it so exciting and so alive. Well, yeah, and I took a like. I, I kind of a believer in like, if you're doing a radical book, you should have some radical methods that you're using to draw that book. And so in that case, in that scene, I, I use a toothbrush and I use a large knife. And so I drag the, the toothbrush is filled full of paint and I drag the knife over the bristles and it causes the, the, um, the paint to splatter onto the, to the page. And that's how I achieve that effect. And I also cut directly into the, the um, ink with the knife. So, um, it's partly a, a bit of a ceremony of how someone can draw, in my case, uh, to try to be into the spirit of, of the action, the radical action that is occurring on the page. So, um, so it, it gets a bit messy, but then that's, that's social change for you. It's all messy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's the art representing the message. I mean, it's, I, 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 I was, I was just captivated. Um. So, David, when, when doing graphic history, what are your principles for balancing uh, image and text? How do you negotiate the, uh, the, the telling versus showing uh, situation? Yeah, that's a, that is the, the, the problem. <laughs> and a problem I see over and over again in, in uh, graphic histories. Um, because uh, uh, the danger is always that too much text versus the art. And uh, it's overwhelming to the reader and, um, and makes for crowded, visually unappealing pages. And uh, I, I usually get really bored if I, if I find a book like that. I just can't continue. So in my previous book, 1919, I sought to avoid this by having one sequence where the police attack strikers be almost a third of the book as a way of giving the reader uh, time to digest what they've read up to that point and give the book a sense of rhythm and dynamic. And in Profit Against Slavery, I start the book, as we uh, talked about, uh, uh, by having several pages without text in the opening section. Uh, so the story starts, in a way, as a bit of a mystery as to who is this guy where, walking with a cane? Where is he going? Where, 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 um, and, and we don't know until, until a frenzy of, uh, it ends with a frenzy of words and action at the end. And so... Um, the book has a number, as you pointed out earlier, a number of wordless pages. And part of that came out of an idea Marcus uh, put forward in our uh, first meeting about, about this project. And it was um, that we should allow moments of contemplation uh, because it was important to Benjamin Lay. 
And so it should be important to telling his story. And uh, Marcus can talk uh, maybe more about that in detail, but I, 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 I thought that was really, um, really great of him to say that. And I, I heartily agreed. And I tried to incorporate that throughout the book was this calmness of just let, there's no action. It's just a person sitting there and, and, uh, and let that give a rhythm to the book. And so I'm a very much a fan of the old films of Wells and Hitchcock and their approach to cinema. And so if I can make something purely visual, I do. Historical comics should, should not just present the facts, but should impart a feeling of events unfolding. And that can involve the silence of drawings without words. David, do you want to speak to that, the importance of silence, especially for Benjamin Lay? Well, uh, silence was a very important thing to the uh, spiritual life of Quakers. And the idea was that this is how you commune uh, with your own soul, but also with the souls of others. Uh, the silence was a, a profoundly communal experience in many instances. And so I think it's, uh, it's fascinating that David has been able to incorporate that uh, into the book because this was genuinely important to Benjamin. He used to say, why do people with nothing to say keep interrupting our meetings? <laughs> you know, you have nothing to say. Be quiet. Listen. Think. Benjamin was a thinker, and silence was very important to his thought. I, I just went through a department meeting uh, with my, my colleagues, and uh, <laughs> similar thoughts were <laughs> passing through my mind. I um, love them all. Um, so, <laughs> so um, what, uh, Marcus, what was your process for working with David? Um, and have, have you done similar collaborations with um with academic historians? You know, at this point, uh, Mike, in my career, uh, I am really interested in collaboration uh, more than ever. I mean, I, I did write this book, The Many-Headed Hydra, with Peter Linebaugh. That was a, a quite a powerful experience. Uh, but now what I'm really uh, eager to do is to find talented uh, people like David Lester, and to, to, to find ways to bring history from below to people through new media. And whether that's a, a play or a documentary film uh, or a graphic novel, this to me is, is literally the most important thing to be doing because uh, that's, a, that's just a great source of creativity. You know, uh, the graphic novel that was produced is the result of a lot of the work that I've done and a lot of work that David's done, and it could only have been done in that combination. So this is one of the things that I think collaboration can do. It leads you to something new, uh, and hopefully that's the creative principle. Uh, I must say working with David was a tremendous pleasure. Uh, we had a lot of conversations about Benjamin Lay. Uh, he had a lot of questions. He was uh, eager to read, eager to learn. He did a tremendous amount of research on his own, uh, especially into the visual culture of Benjamin Lay's uh, era. So uh, the, the back and forth uh, was, was just, to me, a joy. This is a very good example of uh, a process that really works. Yeah, so you've both been really generous with your time. And I've got uh, two more questions for each of you before before I let you go. Um, Marcus, what are you working on now, and what can we hope to see from you next? You ma you mentioned the, the stage play, but what else are you working on? Well, I'm working on a new graphic novel with David Lester. <laughs> uh, oh, really? <laughs> okay. I'm very, I'm very happy to say, uh, but he knows more about that than I do, so I'll <laughs> let David talk about that. Um, but yes, uh, this, uh, this play with Naomi Wallace about Benjamin Lay, we, we're very excited right now. We have a, a top director in Ron Daniels. We have an outstanding actor uh, in Mark Povinelli. We have an award-winning set designer. We've got a great creative team, and we're looking forward to uh, a production of the play, we hope, in the reasonably near future. The, the history project that I'm doing right now is a book about Escaping Slavery by Sea in 19th Century America. 
And this is, uh, treats the waterfront or the docks as a zone of struggle, as a place where uh, enslaved people, sailors, stevedores came together, uh, conspired, which actually just means breathing together, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's the meaning of the word conspiracy. So down in the hold of the ship, they breathe together and something new happens. Uh, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people actually escape slavery by sea, but uh, we have relatively little knowledge of that. So, so that's my next uh, big project. Oh, you're, you're killing me. Why didn't, why didn't I become a maritime historian? I didn't, I didn't know this was an option. <laughs> um, David, how about you? Current projects? Uh, we just heard a rumor of something. Yeah, Marcus has just spilled the beans on that one. So uh, uh, I'm just uh, in the process of inking uh, the, uh, the uh, book uh, based on Marcus's uh, Villains of All Nations, Atlantic Pirates in the Golden Age. Oh. And, uh, and the way I work is I, you know, I, I draw everything in pencil first, all the scenes, and, uh, and then I go back and ink them all, and then I go back and paint on them. So uh, I'm in the inking stage, getting close to uh, uh, closer to finishing in the next two months, and uh, and then I will put it all together, and then um, send a draft to Marcus and Paul, and they will give their feedback, and we'll make changes. And with Benjamin Lay, we went through five different, uh, or I think we went through five different drafts on the actual text, but uh, as far as the final uh, version, I think maybe we went through back and forth four times making changes. So that's the process. And so we still have a bit of time to do on, on that. Uh, uh, my, my punk rock duo, Mecha Normal, has three shows coming up next fall, opening for Bikini Kill, if, if, if the world allows us to travel. And uh, I have uh, another duo called Horde of Two that has a, that it's an instrumental duo of guitar bass. And we have an album coming out in early 2022 uh, based on the life of Derudi, uh, the Spanish anarchist during the Spanish Civil War. And uh, and when I have spare time, I'll go back to writing and drawing a, a graphic biography on the last year of the life of uh, anarchist Emma Goldman, who died in Toronto in 1940. So there's the Canadian connection there. Well, I'm I'm very jealous of all your talents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Um, can you recommend two books for us, David? Um, uh, maybe two graphic histories or, or, or anything you really think the audience should read? Well, uh, there are two recent books that uh, have come out, and I recommend uh, the 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance comic book by Gord Hill, which is a, a, a fantastically, a fantastic illustrated history of Indigenous struggles in the Americas. And Gord is an Indigenous writer, artist from Canada. Uh, and Save It for Later, Promises, Parenthood, and the Urgency of Protest by Nate Powell, uh, which is a very personal story of a family living in a time of uh, the creeping possibility of fascism in America. And I, and I, I really admire that he did this book because normally he did, he did the March series with about con- uh, Congressman John Lewis. And so very, very direct uh, uh, political biography. But to take on a subject like this, which is very personal, uh, you're, you risk a lot as an artist because, you know, of course, people will just, when they attack you, they are attacking you personally because of your, the things you're saying about, about the world. And uh, there's no distance in that, that, that we may have as historians where we can, can say, well, this is, we're talking about someone else, but this is about, he's talking about himself and his family. And so uh, it takes great bravery. So I recommend both of those books. Great, great. Uh, Marcus? Two books? Well, I would uh, recommend first and foremost uh, a book that I teach every chance I get, which I think is in many ways the very origins of Atlantic history. And I'm referring to the classic by C.L.R. James, The Black Jacobins, about the uh, one of the world's great revolutions, the Haitian Revolution, which uh, sent... Uh, shockwaves around the world that announced the beginning of the end of the slave system. And James in 1938 wrote this brilliant narrative of Toussaint Louverture and this army of self-emancipated people. And I think it's just a magnificent book. 
Hold on, uh, pod, sorry to interrupt, but podcast listeners uh, recently did an interview with um, Alyssa Goldstein Seppenwall on her book on the Haitian Revolution in film and video games. So we go into the back catalog of new books in history and look at that. She does a fantastic discussion of that, about the lack of the, the you know, like uh, Michelle Rufchio shows the, the silent scene of the Haitian Revolution, not just in the historiography, but in film. And it's actually in video games where you have the best sort of discussion. So, sorry, self-plug. <laughs> but, uh, well, I don't know. It's, it, anyway. it's, a, it's a fascinating point. Uh, as it turns out, Mike, I am a collector of Haitian art. And a lot of Haitian artists uh, depict scenes from the Haitian Revolution as a matter of both pride and memory. So, uh, so how it Fantastic. has and has not survived uh, is is a in history and in memory is a really key point. The other book I would recommend is a novel. It's a historical novel by a man named Barry Unsworth. It's a novel about the slave trade. It's called Sacred Hunger. It won the Booker Prize in 1993. Uh, and I think it's just one of the most extraordinary accounts uh, that you'll ever have the opportunity to read. It's a uh, 600 pages of pure, beautiful, powerful writing, no gimmicks, no tricks, uh, but just an extraordinary human story uh, about uh, a mutiny that took place on a slave ship uh, and a maroon community that was built uh, as a new way of living in the new world. So Unsworth, uh, Sacred Hunger is another book I would strongly recommend. Excellent. Thank you. So, uh, David Lester and Marcus Redeker, thank you so much for your time. It was really a pleasure talking with you guys. Thank you, Mike. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, Mike. Thank you for having us. So, this has been a conversation with David Lester and Marcus Redeker about their book, Profit Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel, out with Beacon Press in 2021. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.